So uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. Um, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5 today. I, I thought it'd be appropriate to talk about uh, our lives as a new creation uh, in Christ. You don't have to open your Bibles just yet. We've got an intro and some other stuff. Um, when I was 16, uh, a friend of mine invited me and a few others uh, to go with him um, uh, to a teammate's house. I played football at the time, uh, to a teammate's house, and we were going to shave our heads in solidarity with him um, because he had to have brain surgery. Uh, and so up until then, I had really long, like shaggy, kind of punk rock skater boy hair. Um, obviously now I do not have that. Um, for the last five or six years, I keep it like really, really short because I'm balding on top. I just am. You can see like my five head here. Um, but between that first time that I buzzed it uh, and about five or six years ago when I started doing it because it's just thinning, uh, I sort of ended up developing this ritual, um, for lack of a better word, where every now and then, like when, when life would get uh, too stressful, when I needed a change, when I needed uh, a break from my anxiety and, and, uh, and all the things going on, uh, I would go, it wasn't always buzz, but I would go uh, into the bathroom, I would turn on some music, and I would buzz my own hair, and I would come out of that moment feeling refreshed and renewed, sort of like a new person, right? Like, a, like it was a clean state, like a slate, like I was starting over. Um, and I think, uh, if you're like me, a, lo a lot of us have that sort of ritual, right? Maybe you go and you buy a new dress or a new shirt or new shoes that feel like this is the new me that I'm going to be putting on. Uh, or maybe you have uh, some place where you drive to to stop and just sit and think for a while and come back changed. Or maybe it's not even a place. Maybe you just go for that long drive. Um, but maybe you have some sort of, again, ritual, for lack of a better word, uh, where you go to feel refreshed and renewed and, and remade. And I feel like all of us... Um, are built with one, right? Like every night, what do we do? We go to sleep, we wake up, we start over, we restart, we're something new. Um, and I feel like these rituals, these little deaths, as I like to call them, um, these, these small acts of renewal, point to something bigger in our lives. This idea that we all long for a new creation. We all long to be remade and recreated and renewed ourselves. So, um, if you wouldn't mind, you can go ahead and open your Bibles now. We're going to be in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Uh, in a minute, we're going to start together at verse 14. But before we do, I want to give you a little bit of background into what this text is that we're walking into. So the latter half of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, Paul is spending some time talking about one of the great mysteries of our faith. Um, this uh, power that we have that now that we live in Christ, we no longer fear death. Uh, instead, we know that something greater awaits us on the other side. And he uses this sort of analogy of tents and a permanent dwelling place, right? So if someone were to remove this tent, this earthly body uh, from us, we wouldn't be afraid, we wouldn't be worried, because we know we would immediately end up uh, in heaven with God in our permanent bodies, our permanent dwelling places. So because of that, we have this incredible confidence, right? We know that right now we're like away from God, so to speak, but in the end we'll end up with him. So there's nothing in this life, right, nothing bad that can happen, not even death that is worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. So we end up with this great confidence. And then he transitions in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 5 to start talking about something different. It seems like somebody has sort of uh, been accusing him of, his overconfidence, of commending himself too much, of thinking too highly of himself. 
And so uh, Paul responds. I love the way he responds. He says, look, if I am crazy, which is what they say, he's crazy. He, he thinks too highly of himself. He says, look, if I am crazy, then it's for God, right? It's between me and him. If I'm crazy for God, like that's the thing God and I can talk about ourselves. But he says, if I'm right, if this is true, if the things I'm saying and preaching are true, then I need you to know that's for you. All of this, the, the way I preach, the way I live, my gospel confidence, it's for you. And then we jump into verse 14. So all this is for you, for the love of Christ controls us. For we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, sorry, uh, from now on, therefore, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is one of those great passages I really uh, love. It's what we call both descriptive and prescriptive. So descriptive language means Paul is talking about himself. This is very much Paul articulating like his power, his position of authority, his ability to preach and love and why he is the way he is. But it also applies to every believer because all of these things apply to anyone who has faith in Christ. They apply to us here and now just like they applied to Paul 2,000 years ago. And so here's what he says, right? So we start off, like, he says, the love of Christ binds us together, right? So he says, the love of Christ controls us, for we have concluded this. And I, I love, we're just going to pause there for a second. Uh, I love that translation of the verse, but I like other ones too, right? So that word control in other translations is also uh, translated as compels or constrains, or technically constraineth, because it's uh, King James, um, in, in ESV, the one we use here mostly at C3, uh, the word is control. And, and that's a good general term, right? We are controlled, we are moved, we are directed, we are powered, we are driven by the love of Christ, right? The things we do, we do because of that love. And I like that in general, but, but that word in other translations constrains or compels, right? Look, to constrain something simply means to bind it together. Similarly, compels, right? So if you propel something, you push it forward. If you compel something, you push it together. You drive it together. So look, if you have a pessimistic view of things, right? Um, it's easy to hear any one of those three words in a very negative light. Most people don't like to be controlled or constrained, and you never hear somebody say compelled in like a positive way. It's like, hey, how was your Christmas? Ah, oh, it was all right. I was compelled to go to my in-laws, you know? Um, but when you think about it in context, about what he's just said, right? If I'm crazy, it's on behalf of God. If I'm sane, it's on behalf of you because the love of Christ drives me to you. It binds me to you. Paul is bound to and compelled to the love of others. Why? Because of Christ's love. Not his power, right? Not his judgment, not simply his lordship, which he does have all of those things. It is his love that has bound Paul to them and me to you and you to others. 
This isn't a kind of compulsion, a compelling that's manipulative or forceful. It's just as Christ has bound you and I to him and his love and his mercy through his death, so has he bound us together. So Paul's saying, look, these dudes can say what they want about me, right? But I'm not going to stop preaching to you or loving you because I'm bound by love to do so. So that's a question I have for you. Do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself as someone who is bound and compelled to love others? But he continues his explanation. Um, so he, say, he explains that the love of Christ binds him, uh, and he explains to us what that looks like, right? Like how that works. He says, I'm here for you out of love for you because of this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but, who, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I want to just pause here for a second. I, I want you just to think about those words. I know you've probably heard them before. Uh, it's a great gospel passage. I want you just to slow down. Don't let your minds wander. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't let your brain go, yeah, yeah, we know this, the gospel stuff. Look, God, the God, the, the one who built this whole universe, who sits uh, enthroned above the stars, the God who knows every molecule uh, on this earth, on your body, every hair on your head, the one who's named the stars and keeps account of them, the one who built the physics that keeps this universe running, this God came down to this little planet as a baby and grew up and lived a life as a, as a human, right? Fully God, fully human. And he grew into this man and this man traveled for years preaching and teaching and healing and loving people. And then, though innocent of any crimes, of any sins, he was put to death. But he didn't just let it happen, right? This is something he planned on. God himself in human form, was put to death. And as it happened, he took upon himself all of the rash, sorry, the wrath, the punishment, the eternal consequences of your sins and your failures and your transgressions. When he died, he took uh, all of those sins and all of their consequences with him to the grave. And when the one died, right, he took death, the ultimate consequence for sin, to the grave with him, and he rose without it. When he died, all died. And he rose that we might all live again as well, but not for ourselves now, but for him. Can you fathom it? The God of the universe died for you and for me. And now, through that, right, he's empowered you, right? The, the love of Christ like alters your perce perceptions, right? He's now empowered you by taking on the punishment for those sins and giving you instead his perfection and his righteousness. He's empowered you to live a life worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? It says, look, he did it so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Um, those, who, by the way, for a second, those who live here specifically means like those who accept his death, accept his sacrifice, who believe in it, right? It's not that everyone all at once has now already died and is back. It is those who live in him, right? Um, but what does it look like? What does it look like to not live your, for yourself, but for him? Paul gives us two immediate sort of explanations of how this plays out to understand this idea. The first is this. From now on, therefore, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. Even though we once... Um, 
regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. The idea of flesh is this idea of earthly things, right? Um, other translations use the word, uh, words, worldly perspectives, right? So because of this, because we are bound together because we already died, and because we now live for him and not for ourselves, we don't know anyone from a worldly perspective. There's a New Year's resolution for you. Treat each person like all you know about them is that Christ loves them and has died for them just as he has done for you. Treat each person like Christ has bound you, has compelled you to love them. Live your life like it isn't meant for you. Because it's not. So look at me. The way you treat people no longer gets to have anything to do with them. It has nothing to do with their past, with um, their failures, their shortcomings, how they've wronged you, uh, what they believe in, their failures. None of it matters. We don't know anyone from a worldly perspective. Why? Because Christ doesn't know us from a worldly perspective either. God looks upon us with Christ's perfection. And that's hard. Look, if you're anything like me, you've already jumped to like a million whatabouts, right? There's a million ways, a million reasons where you're like, well, okay, what about like this type of person or like that guy or like those people over there? These people that like, we should maybe kind of judge them by earthly standards. It's kind of scary if we don't, right? Listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take all of those whatabouts that are in your mind right now because I've got a bunch. I've got specific people in my mind. I'm like, yeah, but like, like Christ loves them. Like, uh, okay. Um, we're going to take all those whatabouts. We're going to round them up, okay? We're going to walk them back to Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7, and we're going to drop them off there for the morning. I'm not going to read the passage. We're just going to go over some highlights of what Jesus says when he's talking about what his kingdom looks like, what his people look like in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's some things he says. Um, hey, if you get sued for your shirt, give that person your cloak too. I don't know about you. If somebody sues me, my worldly perspective is like, now they're my enemy. I'm not giving them anything. I hardly want to give them what they're suing me for. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If they sue you, give them more. Jesus says, hey, if somebody demands that you walk a mile with, you, with them, walk an extra mile. I like this because this has sort of two parts. One, the demand itself, right? Like somebody's telling you what to do, not asking you. Like, hey, Luke, would you walk with me for a while? Like, hey, Luke, you're walking with me. We're going over there. So one, we don't like being forced to do anything. We don't like that demand. And two, I mean, walking a mile with somebody, why would we do that? But like, he said, look, sorry. He says, look, you're not viewing them based on what they've demanded of you or asking for from asking you for, uh, you look at them and you respond to them with a kingdom perspective. You give them even more what they ask than what they ask for. How about this one? If this one doesn't hit the nail on the head. Hey, love your enemies. Your enemies. Look, if right, whatever came to your mind when I said, hey, we're going to treat everybody like Christ loves them. We're not going to think about anything that they've done in the world. At some, somewhere in your mind, you have like, there's this group of people, like they're kind of the enemy. Look, those people, Jesus himself also says, you've got to love them. You've got to treat them well. 
Bless those who persecute you, right? If someone slaps you on the cheek, what do you do? You turn, you offer the other cheek. That's a, that's a kingdom perspective, right? Give and expect nothing in return, right? Look, so if your immediate reaction is like, Ross, that's not reasonable. That's not how the world works. It's not logical. You're right. It's not. It's not reasonable. Look, if you want to be successful in the world, if you want to succeed in the world by uh, the world's measure of success, this won't get you there. This will get you lost somewhere. It's an entirely new way of being, right? It's radical and it's, excuse me, and it's crazy and it's dangerous and that's okay. Because you're not living for you anymore. And Paul continues, moreover, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christ recreates us. Look, the moment you stop living your life for you, you begin living a new life. Immediately in its own right, that's a new creation. But that's not even like what we're getting at. This isn't just a metaphor. This isn't just a figure of speech of how you should live because Christ uh, has died for you. This is Christ recreating you. This isn't about how you just act externally. This isn't just your New Year's resolution. This is new creation, right? As an analogy, right, this isn't Christ came into your broken down home of your life and like fixed some leaky pipes and like, uh, you know, replaced that mirror and fixed the door. This is Christ, the owner of the neighborhood, bought you a new house on his own dime just to give you a new place to live, a new creation. If you're not living out of that reality, right? If you don't feel it, it's one of two reasons. It's either you don't know Christ yet, which means I'm glad you're here because you're going to hear the gospel a lot. Please keep coming back. I want you to know Christ. Or you do know Christ, but you've let yourself lose sight of the gospel as your first love, the gospel as your primary mover. Look at what Paul says. Look, the love of Christ compels us. Why? Because we have uh, concluded, we have trusted in, we've embraced, we've found hope in that gospel message. So if you're trying to live out a a new creation life without embracing and accepting why or how that happens or what kind of creation you're supposed to be, then it makes sense that you're getting mixed up. You're like, I'm not doing it, Ross. Yeah, your focus is wrong. It's New Year's, right? Some of y'all have spent the past week, maybe the past month, thinking about focusing on, like, the things that, starting today, you're going to change for this upcoming year, right? But unlike this day, where we look at all the things we could fix, all the, you know, minute changes we could make um, about ourselves this upcoming year, unlike that, we don't move into living a new creation kind of life by simply trying harder and doing more. If we're honest, that doesn't really even work for the New Year's resolutions for most of us. Instead, instead, what we find is that change occurs by focusing on Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. What he's accomplished on our behalf. Not just that he lived a good life, not that he taught good teachings, but that the God of the universe gave himself up for you to redeem you, to rescue you, to make you a new creation. And I want to make this clear, right? 
that message, that gospel, that's not the, just the starting place of Christianity, right? This is not, okay, you prayed the prayer, you believed the thing, now go, hard, go try harder and do more and do like the christian thing. That's not how it works. Look, the gospel is not just a well that was dug for you that you could drink water and be refreshed and kind of move forward. The gospel is the well, and it's the water in the well, and it's the spring that feeds the well. The gospel is the power and the refreshment itself that allows you and pushes you into change. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, look, the grace of God has appeared, and it trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It's the gospel. It's the grace that moves us, that changes us. So you might say, Ross, okay, like, how do I get there? You've told us kind of how it works. I need, I need to focus on Christ more. How will I know that I'm doing it? How will I know that I'm living the right kind of life, right? And there's a bunch of answers, right? The gospel's full of them. Not the, well, the gospel too, but the Bible's full of ways that we could change how we live. One of the other places in the New Testament that Paul specifically talks about new creation is in Galatians uh, chapter 6. Um, and there's this phrase I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Don't worry, there's kids in the room. Um, there's this phrase, right? He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only a new creation. That same phrase is used a chapter ahead, but instead he says, neither, un- neither circumcision nor un- oh my gosh, uncircumcision count for anything, only faith working through love. What a good summary of what that new creation life is, of what that looks like, Right? Being a new creation, when we talk about this, that doesn't just mean that, like, suddenly you're not going to sin, you're not going to stumble, you're not going to fail, right? Suddenly you're perfect. That would be great, but that's not how it works, right? We do still fail. We sometimes default back to our old system, our old heart. We still sin. But now, instead of dwelling on it, on becoming overwhelmed by our failures, we have grace and mercy and power of Christ, right? We find that. We dig into that. We uh, rejoice in that. We repent. It just means change directions. We right our wrongs and we push forward, not into trust, uh, not into trying harder, but into trusting more the sufficiency of his mercy and his grace and his power. And we live out of that And we let that mold us and transform us into being people whose entire life is embodied by that idea that we are a people who are marked by faith, working through love. So church, would that be us this year? As we're bound to Christ, as we're bound together, would we we be a person and a people who are marked by faith, working through love? And sure, look, your other goals, your other resolutions are great. Lose the 20 pounds if that's what your goal is, right? Lose, um, you know, spend less time on social media, lift heavier weight, uh, spend more time outdoors, budget better. Those are actually all some of my goals. Um, Those little things are great. But here's your daily resolution. Be a person whose life is marked by faith working through love because you have concluded this, that your old self has died with Christ. And that your new self doesn't live for you, but for him. Bound and compelled by, by his love to the love of and care for and preaching to others. 
that's where initially I was going to end the sermon, but I actually have a little bit more I want to say. Um, <laughs> just being honest. Here's the deal. I don't want to just deepen this day for you, right? I don't want you to just leave here knowing like today's a good day to really focus on being a new creation in Christ. Um, instead of just regular resolutions, we're doing like the deeper rev- uh, resolution. Like that's great. That's good. That is a good thing. But that's not all I want. Here's why, right? What happens when you fail most of your regular New Year's resolutions? Maybe you try again once or twice, three times, but eventually you get tired. Eventually you just kind of go, you know what, next year, I'm just going to give up, right? You skip that meal the first time, or not the meal, you skip your diet the first time and eat that donut or that klatchy, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, we'll try again later. Your... New creation life is not bound up in you trying harder. It's not even bound up in you trying harder to focus on the love of Christ, right? You are bound to Christ's love and his forgiveness for all you've done wrong, not by your strength, not by your ability to live for him, not by your ability to follow the rules to be perfect. You are bound to Christ by his work, his life, his perfection, and his death and resurrection. We are compelled by Christ because we have concluded that he has died for us. Listen. It's over. It's done. The work is finished. You are his. You can fail your New Year's resolutions over and over and give up, but it doesn't matter how many times you fail. You are still Christ's. You have been made new. And look, because the work is finished, right? The work, the cross happened about 2,000 years ago, right? From the point of view of the cross, all of your sins were future sins. So whereas you see, well, I failed yesterday, I failed today, but tomorrow, who who knows? Look, from the point of view of the cross, they're all future sins, and he took care of them all. He took them all with him to the grave. He took the punishment for them, and he bore them on the cross, and gave you instead his perfection and his righteousness before God. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jeremiah says his mercies are new every morning, right? And there's this famous Martin Luther quote that says all of life is repentance. So here's what this means, right? Every moment you are offered grace for your failures and the chance to turn from them towards God. To become a person who is embodied by faith, working through love. So maybe, right, maybe you've already failed your New Year's resolution. Maybe you walked in this morning and saw the donuts and went, nah, it's fine, right? Um, But maybe, maybe it'll take you a couple of months to succeed or quit on your goals. Maybe your goals will be great. Maybe you'll accomplish them and they'll stick with you forever and you'll change your life. That's awesome. Wherever you are on that spectrum, I need you to leave here knowing this. You have been made new, and you are being made new, and you will be made new. We don't need to wait for one special day a year to change and become new. Every day, every moment is filled with new mercies, filled with grace, filled with the Holy Spirit's power in you to make you new. So church, would you embrace that this year? Embrace that you are constantly in the state of being made new, being made like Christ. And let him mold you into a person and a people 
we're bound together, marked by faith, working through love. Let's pray.